From the CQ Roll Call Newsroom in Washington, this is CQ's Week Ahead podcast, your nonpartisan news source for how Congress and the federal government shape the real world. The Supreme Court term comes to an end with decisions on high-profile cases involving abortion and the scope of a law defining political corruption. The process for assembling 2017 spending bills to keep the government running is in shambles after high-profile fights in both chambers over gun control and a nearly unprecedented sit-in by House Democrats. And everyone is pondering the effects of the United Kingdom's decision to leave the European Union. Who are the winners and losers in the so-called Brexit, and what does it mean for U.S.-U.K. relations? I'm Adriel Bettelheim with CQ Roll Call with a look ahead to the week of June 27th with CQ legal affairs reporter Todd Ruger, CQ appropriations reporter Kelly Madrick, David Rennie, the Washington bureau chief of The Economist, and CQ Roll Call chief content officer David Ellis. Todd, the Supreme Court's eight justices are about to skip town. In typical fashion, they're saving their most attention-getting decisions for the final day of the term on Monday. We have an abortion case from Texas that takes up how much states can regulate access to the procedure. And with the court still down one justice, is this going to be another 4-4 tie? Well, the answer is maybe. And uh, they've already had four 4-4 four, four ties this term. Most recently, we saw that with the immigration executive actions from President Obama. And what they did in that case, they tied. It's a one-line order. It just upholds the lower appeals court ruling. And it was the Fifth Circuit out of Texas that upheld the immigration thing. So what you're talking about here is uh, exactly the same thing, where it would be the Fifth Circuit being upheld if it's a 4-4 tie. That would be bad for, uh, a, for uh, abortion providers who say that this law in Texas called HB2 uh, did close down too many abortion clinics and it infringes on the right to get an abortion. Of course, the Supreme Court in 1973 said, and uh, Roe v. Wade said that there was a, a right to an abortion. And now this case is about whether or not that right is infringed too much by having to go too far to get an abortion. And Texas, not the only state that has these restrictions, so conceivably uh, a non-decision could affect other states with similar laws. That's correct. There's about, there's more than a dozen states with similar laws. On the other hand, if the abortion providers convinced one of the, the, the conservative justices to side with them, most likely Justice Anthony Kennedy, then they could get a ruling that strikes down the Texas law. And that, of course, would also have implications for not just the Texas women, but in all these other states. Now, the second decision that's expected concerns the corruption conviction of a former Republican Virginia Governor Bob McDonald. And from the oral arguments earlier this year, you got the clear sense the majority of justices may side with McDonald. Yeah, that's right. I mean, this is a case about what can uh, somebody who's an elected official do for somebody, and then what do they get in return? And is that a violation of these federal bribery statutes or honest services fraud? And what the justices were worried about was this: these laws seem unconstitutionally vague. And by that meaning, lawmakers may not know what is and what isn't illegal. And that's, that's one of the staples of criminal law is if you, if you can't really tell if something's illegal or not, you shouldn't be convicted of it. It's a really fascinating case because it gets to the nuts and bolts of what is a politician's uh, so-called official duties. Can they do certain things for a businessman who promises to bring in a bunch of new jobs in their state or district? Uh, is the existing law flawed or is the concern that the Justice Department is overdoing it with enforcement? 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean the, the key words in this law are official acts. So what are official acts? In this particular case, uh, Governor McDonnell and his wife took approximately $175,000 worth of what the government says are bribes and in return gave, you know, mentioned this company at a meeting, set up a lunch at the governor's mansion for this for this company. And what, what the justices were really seemed concerned about was, well, is that a felony or is that just advocating for a, a constituent? Um, and, and there's a balance. It's Justice Kennedy said it's a recipe for too much power for prosecutors because prosecutors, they, they don't, they're unchecked in the courtroom. They can bring charges and all that happens is a jury says, no, that's not, that's not fraud. And on the other hand, the Justice Department says striking down these laws would be a recipe for corruption because it would allow more lawmakers to take money in exchange for, for acts and, and stay uh, on, the, on the right side of the law. And these uh, decisions are expected to be announced Monday. Uh, the court has not, as in the past, uh, announced additional days uh, uh, that we know about. Right. They've they've said that uh, there's three cases remaining and that they will be announcing all of them on Monday. Uh, so there's a little less drama here at the end of the term than usual. However, uh, as they sort of limp to the end here with eight, only eight justices instead of nine, there's still a lot of interesting questions out there. What cases are they going to take for next year and how many are they going to have? Now, Kelly, uh, across the street from the Supreme Court, the House adjourned early in turmoil after the Democratic sit-in. The Senate doesn't look like it's going to pass a bill that would fund a response to the Zika virus outbreak, and there's not a whole lot of time left when both chambers are in session. So unless some wonderful things happen, it seems inevitable we'll need another stopgap uh, spending bill to keep the government running. Can Congress at least agree to freeze everything in place, and if so, for how long? That's an interesting question. I think that the recent antics we've seen um, between the House and Senate on the gun issues has really shown that, um, you know, really contentious political issues are invading the appropriations process. So Congress's fundamental responsibility to spend federal money is kind of being um, sideswiped by the need of politicians to make statements about gun legislation, talk about the Orlando shooting that left 49 people dead, you know, talk about terrorism. And there's, it would not be surprising if negotiations about a continuing resolution also got bungled up in those, in those issues. It was fascinating to watch what happened on the House floor on Wednesday. It was completely unexpected. Um, Lawmakers were just going through morning hour speeches, a typical procedure that happens in the morning where any lawmaker can come up and talk about whatever they want. And all of a sudden, you know, we had uh, Representative John Lewis of Georgia and John Larson of Connecticut and a number of other Democrats assembling in the well of the House. And um, the presiding officer decided to call the chamber into recess once he realized what was going on, which then triggered outrage among the Democrats who began broadcasting on their cell phones what was happening. It's a very fascinating moment where new media really invaded a chamber that has previously been exclusively controlled by the Speaker of the House. So the House recessed early. 
they are now gone. The Senate is in next week with an appropriations bill that Democrats are railing against. And it's really um, unclear what's going to happen when the House returns from the Fourth of July recess. There's just a, a much higher degree of um, partisan disagreement and common ground between the two parties seems to have vanished yeah, <laughs> or not... in shred of partisan agreement that existed beforehand. Yeah, I'm not making light of it, but it really seemed like political theater, almost performance art fueled by social media. And there was a, a great deal of fundraising going on at the same time by both sides as, as this was going on. Um, how much has the acrimony over gun control and these fights, and we saw the Senate filibuster the week before, just contaminated the process um, overall? I mean, what's the level of distrust there? I think that House Speaker Paul Ryan's remarks following the House sitibuster, as we have coined it in the office, right. um, uh, is really telling. Um, he basically accused Democrats of staging a publicity stunt and argued that not only was it to try to push an agenda they know cannot pass the House, uh, which is controlled by a large majority of Republicans, but also that it was a fundraising ploy as the election year, as election day draws very close. So I think that it's going to be really hard for the House and Senate to be able to come to agreement on spending legislation, and I think that's why everybody looks at a CR. But given that Republicans in both chambers had, have made it a priority to move through spending legislation in so-called regular order, they are kind of left without an agenda to hang on to either. Yeah, making things more ominous, we're seeing some familiar poison pill provisions creeping into the spending bills, uh, a prohibition on new money going to Planned Parenthood for contraception services in the Zika portion, uh, and then language, uh, well, basically not language, but a removal of a ban uh, on the display of the Confederate battle flag at veterans' facilities. Uh. And those are both part of a joint military construction VA and Zika aid package. This was the one appropriations bill that was actually on the train to the president's desk, more likely to reach President Barack Obama than, than any other spending bill that's currently floating through the chamber. But now we have seen that these really controversial ideological provisions are weighing the legislation down at a time when the administration, Republicans and Democrats all agree that moving money to help combat the mosquito-borne Zika virus in the dead of summer is a crucial policy goal for everyone. And so um, I think what we're going to be looking for is this crucial Senate vote on whether or not they will approve this conference package even with all of this, um, even with all of these problematic riders, um, you know, we had another rider in there where they took out uh, this this Confederate flag thing is a huge issue for Democrats who want to see language barring the display of the Confederate flag. Huge issue that's steamrolled the appropriations process in the last cycle. Um, but we're just going to have to look at if the Senate can't approve this appropriations package, are conferees going to come back together again? Can they reconcile the issues that were so contentious before we left for this Fourth of July recess on the House side? And I think everybody is kind of scratching their heads right now as to how common ground can be found. 
Now for the seismic event overseas. The United Kingdom's decision to leave the European Union was one of those huge news stories that maybe looms even larger because we weren't fully prepared for it. Uh, David Rennie, you spent five years in Brussels covering the EU. David Ellis, you spent more than a decade in London. Uh, let's start by just enumerating who are the biggest winners and losers here. Well, uh, the biggest political loser is obviously the Prime Minister. We've had the Prime Minister resign, and it's the kind of news day where that isn't the top headline, uh, which is pretty unusual. <laughs> uh, we've also got a leadership challenge uh, for the leader of the opposition, uh, the Labour leader. But I think the biggest losers, and not to be kind of too pious about this, the biggest losers is the British people, uh, because I think that uh, the promises made to them by the Leave campaign uh, can't be delivered. And I think you'll see people losing their jobs, companies moving to other countries, uh, and, uh, and a, and a self-inflicted recession. The um, talk of getting rid of immigration, closing borders, of British sovereignty that the Leave movement was pushing uh, has some obvious parallels with the rhetoric Donald Trump has used and some in the Tea Party in the United States have used as well. Is that an oversimplification? Or? It's, it's, I think, an accurate parallel that some of the same forces that we see in the United States are at work, not just in Britain, but also elsewhere in the rich West, that kind of backlash against globalization, uh, that nostalgia, particularly among older uh, voters from kind of working communities uh, for a time when you could get a job for life and there wasn't competition from China or India. That nostalgia clearly played a huge role in this. But Britain is also, you know, a strange country when it comes to Europe. Uh, we joined 43 years ago, uh, not particularly with great enthusiasm. We've never loved the European Union. British hearts have never stirred at the sight of the European flag or sound of the European anthem. We sort of backed into it in the early 1970s because, to simplify, the British economy was a basket case uh, in the early 70s and Europe looked more dynamic. And I think the big thing that changed, certainly as far as uh, sort of members of parliament and the elites on the conservative side particularly, is that they grudgingly accepted some of the loss of sovereignty because it gave them access to those European markets. When Europe looked more of a basket case itself, particularly since the single currency crisis 2008 onwards, they sort of thought, well, if we, if we don't like being a member of the club and the other members look like they're broke, what are we still doing here? And you saw these kind of phrases that kept coming up like we're shackled to a corpse. That was a big, big change. Yeah, what I'd, I'd like to say is that uh, you see a generational split. So the people who ironically would have been in their uh, majority years and adulthood and maturing years supposedly benefiting from the European Union voted overwhelmingly to get out. And young people who are now – there's a lot of young voices in London complaining about being disenfranchised, their voices not being heard, but they also voted in smaller numbers. And that's a real lesson about – what happens at the ballot box and why it's important to have your voice heard. That's really borne out by this uh, YouGov poll that we have of almost 5,000 uh, UK adults that showed only 38% of those aged 65 and over supported staying in the EU, just 42% of those in the age 50 to 64 age cohort did. But meanwhile, 66% of those in the age 18 to 24 camp were uh, wanted to remain. And that tells you else, else, else something really interesting, which I think has echoes in the Trump sort of debate here, which is it's too simple to say that this is all about people who are worried about the economy and their economic circumstances. Because one of the lines you heard again and again during this Brexit debate was the foreigners are taking our jobs. But if you look at the exit polls, there was another very large exit poll that came out today. Um, the strongest vote to leave came from people who've retired 
and aren't worried about someone taking their job because they've already retired and they're getting a state pension. And the strongest vote to stay came from people under 25 who precisely are going to be competing with those mostly young European migrants into the EU. So I think David is absolutely right that this was also very strongly about identity and that idea of taking back control. And I think that idea of kind of unabashed nationalism, the same thing that you hear here, America first, tons of rhetoric in this campaign about Britain needs to do what's best for Britain. We need to make sure that this is in Britain's interest. That idea that cooperation is for chumps and for dummies, and it's time to be more selfish. And that really resonated. In other words, make Britain great again. <laughs> I think it would be look, look great on a red or uh, white hat. The other thing about what David mentioned was that the EU was sort of a sore tooth in the body politic of, of, of Britain. I think now it's the main game because with the European settlement sort of blown up, the question of every level of relationship with Europe is now on the table. And uh, do you see it, that being anything other than topic A for the next two, three, five years? I think that's right. And I think that one of the tragedies, I would say, you know, The Economist magazine strongly supported staying in the European Union, even though we've written any number of cover stories saying that the European Union is, is too bureaucratic, is not democratic enough, uh, is too protectionist often, you know, lots of criticisms. But here's the problem. We still remain 23 miles off the coast of France. We still export 45% of our exports go into the rest of the European Union. One of the tragedies for me last night was I, some of your listeners probably, you know, politi political geeks, and so they were watching the, the, the British TV, perhaps. They'll have seen that there was a gigantic shift uh, in sentiment very early on when a town, Sunderland, in the northeast of England, an old industrial town, kind of like a Rust Belt town here, voted strongly uh, for leave. And you saw the pound shed, you know, 3% in a matter of seconds. Sunderland is best known in economic terms for being home to a gigantic Nissan car plant. Now, that Nissan car plant at the moment, you can have a good job there making cars. They're all sold into the European market with no tariff barriers, no restrictions at all. The people of Britain have been sold a pup. They've been told you can have that unrestricted market. You can keep that great Nissan job and we can do a deal that stops Europeans being able to move to Britain and work. They're being promised a manifesto which is completely undeliverable. And I worry that those workers in places like Sunderland, they're going to lose their jobs because those are exactly the kind of plants that are going to move to the rest of Europe. Because why would you take, as you say, David, years of uncertainty about the terms of trade for, uh, for the next two, three, four, five, ten years? I saw an editorial cartoon this morning of uh, the European flag telling the Union Jack we're stronger together and then the Union Jack turning to the, three, you know, the flag that the crosses St. George and saying we're, we're better together. I think the idea of making the sovereignty argument, it doesn't end now for the United Kingdom. And the question now is, essentially, will it be a United Kingdom? That's a, that's a, it's a huge question. I think it may not happen as fast as some people expect. So you look at the map of who voted what, it's very clear that the map of Scotland is a different color. Scotland voted to stay in the European Union. Part of that was, in fact, a reaction against a sense that this was an English nationalist project led by sort of posh Englishmen who don't sort of have many friends in Scotland. And the leader of the Scottish government, uh, who's also from the Scottish National Party, Nationalist Party, the Independence Party, said that, that, that logically there democratically needs to be a second independence referendum. A note of caution, though, I think, is that since we had a Scottish independence referendum last year, uh, where they voted to stay, 
the numbers have only got worse for an independent Scotland. A lot of their numbers last year were based on an unrealistic imagination about how expensive oil would be. With the fall in the oil price, uh, with all the global uncertainty, uh, with the collapsing pound, I think actually you could find that there's a lot of rhetoric about Scotland walking out tomorrow. But it could be really hard for them because all the questions would come roaring back about would they use the euro? Would they want to adopt the euro? How do they pay their bills if oil is at a very low ebb? But you're right. There are some nightmarish things going on. It was really tragic last night for me as a as a Brit. Uh, I'm half English, half Scottish. I feel British. I also feel European. I don't want to have to choose. Now that choice has been made for me. One of the heartbreaking things last night was seeing the demographics that it wasn't just older people who voted to leave, younger people voted to stay. Even places like Northern Ireland, you saw Protestants who like British rule of Northern Ireland voting overwhelmingly to leave the European Union. Catholics who want more national unity with the rest of Ireland voting overwhelmingly to stay. You know, those kind of sectarian divisions wake a lot of very unhappy ghosts uh, that we thought have been put behind us. And that north of the border as well. I, I th- wouldn't that maybe change the equation when you have Edinburgh, which is a financial center, Maybe you have an argument then, a nationalist argument that uh, the London-based financial operations can come up north to a independent Scotland. You heard that in good times. So you certainly heard a few years ago, uh, the Scottish nationalists would point to countries like uh, Iceland and Ireland, and they'd say, look at them, they're these little tiny islands with fantastically large, dynamic, booming bank sectors. What's changed since then, obviously, is that in the last few years, their gigantic financial centers blew up their economies and nearly killed them. And so I think the idea of being a kind of buccaneering, northern European kind of finance-driven <laughs> economy is a little less uh, appealing. Listeners in America may be thinking, why should I care about Lilliput versus Lilliput? You know, this is all a long way away. Here's a short-term reason why they should really care. Um, the last thing the American government needs right now is global turmoil in any significant economy. I mean, the American recovery is already very fragile. Five minutes after you panic about that, Britain is one of the very largest investors in the U.S. The total stock of British investment, foreign direct investment in the U.S. is half a trillion dollars. 800,000 workers in the U.S. work for British companies. It goes the other way too. Gigantic American companies, very, very active in the U.K. Mars Confectionery makes most of its confectionery for Europe in the U.K. Ford Motor Cars, a huge presence. Uh, Cause uh, the beer company... Uh, Molson cause it is now. They, a third of their global sales, I think it is, are sold in the UK. Um, so they, they do not want a UK in a deep recession. In Washington, D.C., in Congress, in Capitol Hill, I would imagine they're looking pretty sort of anxiously at some of the big, sweeping, bold promises made by the Leave campaign during this campaign. They said, when we leave, our best friends in America, who we share a language with and an Anglo-Saxon kind of free market spirit with, they're going to be completely delighted to sign a free trade deal with the UK uh, as soon as we want one. And then you had Barack Obama went to the UK a couple of months ago and said, actually, the politics of free trade deals are really ugly right now. Um, Being as ugly as they are, we're trying to do big blocks one at a time. We want to do the European Union after Asia. If Britain wanted a free trade deal, they'd be back at the queue. In the UK, you saw this, how dare he, Barack Obama patronizing the British, our friends in the Republican Party, they'll see us right. We'll get this free trade deal. I suspect if you went and asked Paul Ryan, Speaker Ryan, or Mitch McConnell, how much do you fancy spending the first weeks of the next Congress in January trying to get a free trade deal through this Congress? 
Is that really what they want on the top of their intray? And they're going to do it because they're in love with the Magna Carta and they feel soggy about Shakespeare? It's going to be fascinating how it elevates trade among the other issues at a time when Trump and to some extent Bernie Sanders have made it a radioactive uh, leading up to this election. I'm curious if you think Europe is going to try to punish the UK in some way in order to send a signal to others who might be thinking about doing the same thing. There are already uh, voices saying that they will. Uh, you have French ministers saying that uh, they don't want to make it look like an attractive option. Uh, you have uh, senior European officials like Jean-Claude Juncker, the president of the European Commission, uh, Martin Schulz, the president of the European Parliament, saying, you know, no sort of waiting around is going to have to happen fast. They want to, you have uh, members of the European Parliament wanting to strip financial services portfolio from uh, the British commissioner. The argument from the Leave campaign, who are busy saying today, hooray, hooray, we're independent, everything's going to be fantastic, is this fairly simplistic argument that because Britain buys more from Europe than it sells to Europe, that somehow the economic sort of self-interest of Europe is to do a sweet deal with us on the terms that we want. The problem with that is twofold, I think. One is bad economics. I mean, I buy more from Safeways than Safeways buys from me, but I'm not the boss of Safeways. You know, it matters which one of you is larger. And the UK is just one country, and we sell 45% of our exports uh, into Europe. Europe, only 17% of its exports are to the UK. There's also a political question. One of the remarkable things about the Leave campaign is their whole argument when it refers to the British, and I think this is an echo of Donald Trump and the Americans, is we should be more selfish. We should do what we want. We should do deals that suit us. We should put our identity first. But then, on the other side, they say, but the Europeans... They won't be like that because their economic rational self-interest and their bean counting will lead them to swallow their pride and do a deal that we've, we fancy. But here's the thing. On the other side of the English Channel, France, Denmark, Germany, Sweden, all these countries, they're democracies too. They have politics too. Their governments are not free agents to do rational, clinical, bean-counting deals uh, with a very aggressive Britain. They have electorates to answer to too. It's a remarkable kind of lack of curiosity about the politics on the other side of the English Channel. Yes, and what you're hearing today now are things that Eurocrats uh, said privately because they didn't want to be seen intervening into the referendum. But you have uh, people saying, we are not going to hold the EU's future to um, fights in the Tory party. And so I think one of the things we'll see now over the next four or five months is the cost of going it alone. So that will be unfolding over the summer and before the, U the U.S. election. And I can also tell you, as a Brit who's been based in, uh, this is my second posting in Washington, I've been here for a total of eight years now, seven years, um, it is true that being a Brit is nice in America. People are nice to you if you're British. They like the accent, you know, basically they think that Britain's a friendly country. But I'll also tell you that I've seen up close as a reporter, America is exceedingly unsentimental about its allies. I mean, there is no American president or speaker of the House or majority leader of the Senate, who is going to take considerable political pain for the UK just because they watch Downton Abbey and like Britain. You know, politics is domestic everywhere. David Rennie, Washington bureau chief and Lexington columnist of The Economist. CQ Roll Call Chief Content Officer David Ellis, my thanks. My thanks, too, to legal affairs reporter Todd Ruger and appropriations reporter Kelly Matrick. I'm Adriel Bettelheim. Thank you for joining us. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and Stitcher, and you can find all of our podcasts on rollcall.com forward slash podcasts. Have a good week. <laughs>